Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Value Line Observer with the Value Guys. I'm Val Hughes, a 30-year Wall Street veteran who's had to take on a secret identity and go underground in order to provide you with my candid views on a handful of stocks out of each week's Value Line Investment Survey. I'm joined by uh, my good friend and fellow Value Guy, Momentum. How are Hi, you? Mo. Welcome back to it's the good, show. Good to be here. We are both 30-year Wall Street veterans who've had to go underground in order to provide you with our candid views on a handful of stocks out of this week's Value Line Investment Survey. You've seen our faces on TV. You've seen us quoted in the news. But our bosses would never allow our unvarnished views on the air, so we've disguised our voices, and they'll never know. This week, <clears throat> we look at the August 12, 2011 edition of the Value Line Investment Survey, small and mid-cap edition, which we've been doing uh, here in 2011. And uh, before I get to that, a couple of important caveats. This show is for entertainment purposes only. That's not a guarantee. Also, uh, we may not have your best interests in mind and may be talking about the exact opposite of what you should be doing for your own best interests. And then third, and this is pretty important, I'm drinking. And uh, Mo, I see uh, you're not drinking I am this not, week. but somebody has to be the designated thinker today, so I guess that falls on <laughs> that my will be shoulders. You. Perfect. Um, and so uh, with that, we can get on with the show. I just note that um, last week's show we did on Thursday, a day early, and this week. And what, we're, uh, what we've really had an opportunity to enjoy uh, during these days is wild swings in the value of the stock market. I think last week when we were doing the show, the Russell 2000 value, which is the benchmark for uh, my portfolio, <clears throat> was, I believe, down 8% last Thursday. And uh, we were down somewhat less than that, which in weird institutional land is good because we outperformed our benchmark. We only lost 6% of our money, uh, and that was good. Now, today... Um, the Russell 2000 value, which is oftentimes either the worst or the best index on any particular day, today it was the best, and it was up 5.2%. Well, it's good to know the crisis is finally over. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's scary uh, for a little while, but... Now, early in our careers, I mean, 5%... A year? Uh, yeah. It was, it was a little more orderly, a little less... Uh, a little less volatile, and this VIX index, which measures the volatility, you know, was really spiky in 08, 09, and it calmed down. I think this last week it's been rocketing back toward its old highs in terms of just general nervousness in the market. The information flows are so much faster. When we first started, we, as a matter of fact, when we first started, they didn't have computers at the firm that they we did not, started. other than to make Snoopy calendars, if you remember that. Yes, I do remember. <laughs> Those were really, I still have mine. It's a little I, out of date now. I remember Val's first assignment. He was given a month to create a spreadsheet. Little did they know that he actually had an apple. It took him three days to create the, re the spreadsheet. I did. And I had an apple. Uh, and you took two three. months off. You spent, I took a couple. You spent some of that summer on the beach. Well, other people were spending a lot of time sharpening pencils and erasing things, so I, I, I do remember that. Uh, but, yeah, it's a lot different now. Now you can see how much money you're losing instantly, and um, and so can your clients, and they have your phone number, and that's a whole Do you remember story. we would come into the office in the morning, look at the Wall Street Journal, and to see what the prices were. 
Yeah, to see the closing price. Yeah. And then uh, a woman named Sheila came into our office. Came into our offices to tell us at noon what the stocks were at that next day. And I remember that. Gamil, we're not giving away too much information. Well, Gamil, the mailboy. The he was the mailboy. Would bring clippings. Yeah, right. From the what was that machine called? The Dow Jones machine? Dow oh. Jones News Retrieval? It was a ticker machine or something. The Quotron? AP machine. They didn't have Quotrons. It was an AP machine. It come in with little scraps of paper that he had physically cut with a scissors yeah. with the little news I do items that. on there. We were not the most technologically advanced firm, but it didn't get much better than that even at the most technically. I ran into him, by the way, a few years ago on the street, Gamil. He's a hedge fund manager now. Yeah, he's doing great. <laughs> he lives in Switzerland. Yeah. I don't know. Um, Anyway, the point of that is it's a volatile business, volatile market, and I think if you, uh, if you buy things right, use patience, you know, uh, the small cap value is the place where you tend to have the best returns over time. But patience is pretty critical, <clears throat> and um, knee-jerk reactions are really to be avoided. Some days it's best not to come in if you're going to get too scared and do something Foolish, because if you sell when everything's going down, guess what? You will not be participating when things go up. So if you had sold yesterday because the market was so scary and down, you would not be enjoying your 5% up today. And the difference between being in and out is the difference between um, having good returns and not having good returns. So um, if you're going to commit to the stock market as a return vehicle, uh, I might suggest not trying to time the market. Just just be in for some period of time and decide what that is or be out. But don't try to trade daily because you're going to have to make two correct decisions, which stock to get out of and when, and then when to get back in and which stock. So I don't know what your thoughts are on that moment. Um, we tend to try to do it one time. Unless we're wrong, then we sell it. So Easier. Yeah. All right, well, Three ideas this week, three uh, pretty good ideas, I think, uh, all out of the small and mid-cap value line edition. Um, and I'm going to go alphabetical this week, as I've been doing. First up, Atwood Oceanics, ticker ATW. Um, now, the value line says 44.67. I think that's Monday's price. Actually closed today at $42.00. And so uh, about 5% cheaper than, than what it's listed here at. The first thing I'm attracted to is it's 11 times earnings, which is a 33% discount to the average P.E. So I keep looking at that point because it looks cheap. I'm looking down now at the uh, operating margin line. My eyes just gravitate down toward there. And holy cow, it's in the 40s and 50s in terms of percent. And that's... I don't want to use any really, you know, advanced terms, but freaking high. Freaking high is what I'd say. That is a technical term. Yeah, a lot of people won't know what that means, but you could look that up. It was 53% last year or two years ago, 56%, 55%. So I keep looking. I know I'm at their return on capital. It's in the 20s and high teens. They've got um, very little debt, a big wad of cash. So, uh, wait, I have that reversed. I'm sorry. They have a... They have a, a bit of debt and a little bit less cash, but it's pretty well covered, I think. And so I keep looking. I don't love debt, but, you know, they, they seem to be in a position to enjoy it with their 50% operating margins, or manage it, I should say. So what do they do? 
Their name says a lot, Oceanics. These guys, Atwood Oceanics, engage in international offshore drilling and completion of exploratory and developmental oil and gas wells-related support, management, and consulting services. Okay. Now, I like to have themes in stocks, so you can tell if your theme goes wrong, you should sell it. Don't make up a new theme. So you should know why you own a stock, and if you can't figure out why you should own a stock, don't own that stock. So on this one, what's my theme? The theme is that... A, we're going to continue to use fossil fuels even though we don't want to because they're cheap, accessible, the technology's built out. And what's happened is a lot of the easy-to-find oil on the land has been used. And now there's a big ocean out there, and the technology to go deeper into the 70% of the world that's the ocean floor is up a lot. And so it's a decent assumption that in the future there's going to be a lot more oil coming out of deep water than there has been in the past. And these guys are involved in that. So I've got wind at my back, and I like that. Um, in terms of whether they're any good at it, and again, I, I may have heard of this company, but I am only looking at the value line right now. And I, I think that margins are a pretty good measure of how proprietary something is, because if their operating margin is 50%, it means that the costs of everything they're doing are 50%, which means they're charging the customer two times what the actual cost is. Now, why in the world would anybody pay two times what they could do with themselves for? Well, the point is they can't do it themselves. They've got to have that thing, and the price, the margin doesn't matter. They just need the technology and the know-how, and that says proprietary. And then the returns on capital... There must not be very many other people that can do this. Otherwise, those returns would be competed away down to a more reasonable level. So I like all that about it. Um, the net profit margin, which, again, this is so high. It's in the 40% range for net margin. Part of that is because they, they run a, you know, a, a, a mid-teens tax rate. They've got, I'm sure, a lot of um, subsidies as a result of oil and gas exploration, but that's apt to be a subsidy that, you know, could erode over time, but you're not going to take away my 50% operating margins just from a rise in the tax rate. So um, I'm, I'm kind of okay with that, and each year they retain the subsidy. It's just another year that you're getting that extra value. The other information I have here is, uh, you know, this year has been – a little bit of a flattish year, obviously, with what's going on. The outlook for the economy near term isn't that good. That's why the stock's been a little bit hit. Um, you know, the high was 48. It's back down here to 42. Oil prices have been coming off a little bit. But what we are seeing is the economy is still growing. Um, now, the forecast the market may be giving us is that that's not going to continue. But I do know that we're using oil and I do know that more of it's going to come from water uh, drilling. And so I like that, 11 times earnings. Um, they do have a little more debt than I'd like, but it's 23% debt to capital. The interest rate on the $400 million in debt, I'm going to guess, is around, uh, I, haven't, I don't know because they're not telling me here, I don't think. But let's say it's a 5% you know, rate. That's $20 million in interest and their operating income is 300 million. So 300 million divided by 20 million is, you know, your coverage, which is pretty good. And you look back and say, well, what are the chances they're going to lose money? And 
mean, anybody could lose money, but they've never lost money. And their operating margin has been stepping higher throughout the last 10 years, which suggests to me that something's going right. Either they're learning how to do things cheaper and their competitors aren't, the value of what they're doing is getting better and they're raising their prices. You know, I don't know what it is. Could just be economies of scale because they've gone from 145 million in sales in 03 to 650 last year and maybe about that same level this year. So um, this thing looks pretty attractive to me. Atwood Oceanics, ticker ATW. So, Mo, there you have my, my thoughts on that. Well, I'd, I'd sort of chime in with a couple of observations, Val. One is that. Um, the stock is trading at a discount to the market, but it always has, or it has for the last five years. So is it cheap relative to the market? Yeah, it's relatively cheap, but it, it has Maybe that's where it always is. It yeah. is always historically traded down there. So I don't know that I'd jump all over that. I always like to look at that line where it historically has been to see yeah. if there's any departure. But that, there doesn't seem to be anything strange there. It does seem as though there is... They are leveraging a, their fixed cost base because each year that their sales have increased, the margin has increased. Yeah. So the margin's gone from, look at this, 31% in 2004 to 33 to 40 to 47, 53, 56, and a little bit of a tick down to 55. But as those sales have increased, the margin has increased, which would suggest a nice fixed cost base. Um, that they can continue to leverage. Now, maybe it's simply as, as uh, the cost of that, as they can charge more to drill, they've got that revenue coming in, but it, the cost of building a rig or the cost of floating a rig out there doesn't increase proportionally with their, with their sales. So that's good. One of the things I did notice is 17 customers. Yeah. So they're a little bit concentrated. Those customers well, are... Well, three or over 10%, I see. Right. So that is a risk. Yeah. So... Um, and they're, they're largely overseas. I don't know if that is uh, something we need to worry about. I but, think you know, they're largely in the seas. That's, that's underseas, I, not overseas. <laughs> exactly. it's a, to oh, they're overseas, fine, not under. That's a fine line there. Exactly. Um, but, you know, when I, when, I, when I look at this chart, here's what I see. You had five years of a stock that went up every single year. It was a straight shot, straight up. You had a reset in 2008 when the whole market declined, and they were – they participated. But ever since that reset, the stock has been climbing up, again, very consistently with the stock looking like it, at least from the, <clears throat> from the chart here, has been up or relatively up every single year since the reset in 2008. So I like that. I have a question for you. You mentioned in this stock the PE. You went right to the PE. Yeah. <clears throat> You've got, I think the last time I counted, there were 47 lines of data and ratios for these stocks. Do you have one go-to ratio that you always look at in every, in every stock? Or if you had to choose, or do you, do you look at a different ratio or just something that catches your eye when you pull this out of the book and you're looking at it? Well, I think, uh, of course, but there's no one metric that has to be in there. It's a mosaic. Just like anything, you know, choosing a restaurant or a spouse, you know, there's a lot of... By the way, I just want to say hi to my wife, who might be listening, and uh, I'm going to be late for dinner, so I want to apologize. Um, so, and choosing a wife is, is a lot like choosing a good restaurant. 
It is. Very similar. Well, if you're going to go to that same restaurant every day. You want to spend a little more yeah. time choosing one than the other. Be a little more careful. Because restaurants, you, you, you really got to spend a little time on that. Yeah, absolutely. But And in stocks, I mean, you have 50. So you can make a mistake. But what I would say, to get back to your Ratio. question, is there's a, there's a couple things. You got to look at the operating margin because that tells you what the profit is per dollar sales before you have the taxes and the depreciation and things like that. At least in value line land, the operating margin is before the non-cash depreciation. In gap accounting, the depreciation could be in several lines, including cost of goods and selling and general expenses, et cetera. But in value line, they make it nice and easy. And the numbers in value line, therefore, are not going to match. If you pull up the company's annual report on their website um, or go to scc.gov and pull up the Edgar data that is available to everyone, you're going to find that the operating margin in there is a little lower because they subtract out the depreciation, which is non-cash, before they calculate operating margin, which is the appropriate way to do it. But in value line, they do it uh, before the depreciation. So I do look at that, and higher is better. To me, it's some measure of proprietary um, aspect of their business. So, And then the other thing I look at is return on capital. And, you know, that tells me, in effect, if I assume that um, all the earnings are returned into the business, and in this case, this company does not pay a dividend, so that is the case. All that money is returned into the business. And so what that is is a return on capital is also a growth of capital. So in order to have 16%, earnings over capital is 16%, but then earnings are added to capital to get next year's capital. So that is also a growth rate. And when you look at GDP growth, let's say, you know, in nominal terms, could be 3 4% um, right now. This is a growth rate of capital, and so uh, and it's theoretical because, of course, next year they could pay a dividend or they, they could invest it somewhere um, in, in something that loses money and then it erodes capital. But as a rule of thumb, you know, return on capital, you can compare that to a bond yield. So bonds are getting, you know, corporate bonds are in the 4 or 5% range right now. Return on capital is the equity guy's and the debt guy's combined return. If I look at the return on equity, 18.8% on this one for last year versus the 16.3% return on capital, that difference is the value of leverage um, or the power of leverage in terms of increasing that total return to the company um, based on debt. It gives the equity-only holder a little higher return. What these numbers, Mo, uh, and you know this, I'm sure, but what it, there's a little formula called the DuPont formula. And all you do is you take income over sales, that's margin, right? And I got sales over capital, so that is in effect what's called a turnover, so sales turnover, asset leverage, how, what, how, how many dollars of sales am I getting per share, or absolute, versus the capital. And so if I do that math, sales over capital times income over sales, I'm going to get income over capital, which is return on capital. So the point is, 
the things you're looking for are companies that can deliver a terrific return on capital. That's the single metric. And there's a couple ways to get there. You could either have a very proprietary product, you have a super high margin, but it takes a lot of capital to uh, generate a dollar of sales. So you can get there that way. Or you could have a product that's an absolute commodity and you only make 2% on it, like the big drug distributors and that kind of thing. But you do uh, $10 of sales for every dollar you have invested in capital, and you can get to a high return on capital that way. So I think companies, each one has their own approach. Are you going to be uh, really proprietary in your product? And maybe it's capital intensive, so you really delve into being the best at making that product and getting a high price for it relative to your inputs? Or are you in a commodity business where the only way to make a decent return on capital is to scale and get really big? So I, I look at all those together. Um, and I want a high return on capital, but in some cases, you know, like one we're about to do, the return on capital is not that great, so I'm not happy about that. The margin is good. I mean, we'll get into this. But sometimes if a company has a low return on capital, you might also ask yourself if it's not due to investments that they made years ago that they've kept on the balance sheet where they just simply overpaid for something so the return is permanently lower because you've got some big expense they made, an investment five years ago that's never going to get the return. They were idiots to do it in the first place. And some CEO is too proud to write it off. It's an impaired asset, but he knows if he writes it off, He's going to look like he made a bad acquisition, so he doesn't want to do that. So oftentimes when you see a new CEO come in, wants to reset the data, they take the opportunity to do the write-off at that point. So of all those metrics, I think really margin mm -hmm. is the one that I really am interested in. And, and you can't phony that up right. like you can return on capital. So. Uh, just so our listeners know, we're going to be posting a quiz on the DuPont equation on the website. That's right. And um, we'll be checking those answers. And anyone that does get a 95, I, I think we can ask. Maybe they would want to give them a guest appearance on the show. Well, we do have a couple ways to get on the show. Uh, one is, of course, you can email money. Me. Money. Well, you yeah. Email money. Or a car. We get on If you send us a car, like a nice like a convertible. That would, that would work. Yeah, and I'm just, Car Talk does this. They get a bunch of free stuff. So we're There is a PayPal button on the website. But, um, no, the, the other way is to send an email, val at thevalueguys.com, and I'll we'll read your question on the air. Uh, the other way is you could call me up and leave your voice question, voicemail question, if I don't answer, and I'll put that clip on the show, you asking a question. My phone number and I don't know if I've ever revealed my phone number on the show. This is my uh, West Coast number. It's 858-952-1028. And if you leave a question there, uh, we'll play it on the air and try to answer it. Um, so anyway, that's Atwood. Where did we come out on this? I'm losing track. Is, um, is this show getting out of hand? No, 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 no. no. I, I like it. I like it. I'm going to agree with you. I like it on the basis of uh, the chart. Yeah. I think that looks very attractive. I like it on the basis of the fact that it seems to be leveraging a fixed cost base. So as sales continue to go up, and they've gone up every single year uh, since 2003, that the margins have been improving. We like the return on equity. And fossil fuels, you kind of, I mean, Gotta love that. we're going to have them. Yep. Right. No way around it. Okay.
Next up, uh, if you're still with us, hope you are, is a company called DG Fast Channel, which is, I don't know, that sounds like uh, what do you think a the basketball D, what do you player think the or something. DG stands for? Uh, Digital. Doug? No, Digital. Garfield, Digital. Digital Fast Channel. I don't know. What, there's some guy named DG involved here, I'll bet. Those are somebody's initials because there's a lot of DGs going on here. In any case, a ticker DGIT. Now, what am I attracted to here? Again, the first thing that hits me across the top of a value line is the PE, 13.9, um, and that was at a 24.62 price, <clears throat> which was last Monday. Today's close, 19.04. So the PE, that's 20% lower, so it's about 11 times right now, assuming earnings estimates have not come down. So I'm interested in that. It's a 15% discount to the market PE. And, you know, as Mo points out, some stocks, if they are always at discounts, maybe that's not a good deal. This one tends to trade at a pretty good premium it if does, you look yep. back over time. And they're at a big discount right now. Well, uh, so that's interesting. Why is that? Um, well, they just completed a pretty big acquisition. Mm -hmm. So while the debt on this value line says none, the actual number... Uh, and I had to go on the Internet for this. I apologize for those purists out there. But it's now $490 million. And I looked at their last quarter. They put up $60 million in revenue, but then they put up a little number they call pro forma at 93 or something, which tells you that the company they just bought did $33 million in the quarter. Or let's multiply that by four. They do $130 million a year. And when I read that news release, it looks like this little company they bought, um, which is called Media Mind Technologies, it looks like it has 70% gross margins on its product. So if I take $130 million in sales times 70%, that's going to give me about $90 million in gross profit. And if I can spread that across existing um, resources that I have, a lot of that might fall to the bottom line. So if I can look at the 90 compared to the 490 that they paid, you know, I'm looking at some type of five times contribution margin. Now, there's apt to be some expenses below that line, but it's possible that they could be absorbed by existing employees at DG Fast Channel. And oftentimes when there's a deal like this, the companies are looking for some sort of synergies, and I don't know what they are right now, but... Um, on that basis, it doesn't look like too crazy of a deal. But that could be why the stock's down. They took on this big piece of debt. It's not clear what the contribution's going to be. Um, and so the market gets a little nervous. Uh, the peak on this thing earlier this year was 38 bucks, and now it's 19 Now, I'll point out that um, when I look at the quarterly sales and earnings, I'm not seeing any down... I mean, I'm seeing a down in uh, last quarter of 2009 and uh, one other quarter. Well, first and second quarter of 2009 were down. But third quarter, fourth quarter of 2009, all of 2010, and the estimates for this year are all meaningfully up uh, versus last year. I just looked at uh, their most recent quarter, and they were showing before the acquisition nearly 20% revenue growth, et cetera. Okay, what do they do? It's cheap on a multiple. 
They've got 45% operating margins. We were just talking about that being a sign of a proprietary product line. Okay, uh, DG Fast Channel, I'm just reading Value Line, provides digital technology services that enable the electronic delivery of advertisements, syndicated programs, and video news releases to broadcasters. They have an online database of content and credits for the U.S. television commercials or of the commercials for advertising and TV production companies. They've got uh, 5,000 advertisers and a media distribution network of more than 28,000 radio, TV, print, and web publishing destinations. Wow. What that suggests to me is these guys have a big database. They have a bunch of content that needs to go somewhere, and, and they're providing uh, the switch that allows all the advertising to go to all the vehicles for the advertising. Not that that's, uh, they're the only ones that do that, but you know, that sounds like it's pretty hard to unplug once you're tied into that and using their systems. And as a result, um, it looks like a pretty attractive offering. Their sales line here, I'll just read the last few years. 57 million, 62, 58, that's a down, but then 68, 97, 157, 190, 250. Now, there's an acquisition in there, but that's pretty good growth. And the only caveat I would put out is that they do tend to grow the share count. And so I am getting a little bit diluted each year. Um, but on the other hand, the last four years all have rising returns on capital, and, and so maybe they're heading, you know, into a good place with that. Um, I don't have a lot else to add. I've done as little work here as possible. Mo. As usual. Yeah, as usual. But I've got a great growing margin. I've got... Um, you know, growing returns on capital, they're not great, but they're growing. And a stock price that's uh, about 50% below where it tends to trade, or 30 40% below on a relative PE basis. And on that basis, um, and I would recommend doing your own work on this, but, you know, I think the database is a pretty entrenched um, asset for them, and it keeps their clients pretty sticky. And my guess is they're going to march to a higher return on capital, and uh, the stock's going to move back to a, a premium. And, and you, you know, from 19, you might get a mid-20s, upper 20 stock over the next uh, 12 months, be my guess on that one. Val, I, I, I have a question for you. Yeah. <clears throat> a lot of people that subscribe to Value Line, I'm not sure if they realize that there are analysts who follow these companies, and they are responsible for keeping these sheets. Yeah. And value line, yeah. Fresh. Yes. Now, in our world, an analyst, we, we, we do more, potentially more, in-depth research. I've never really seen a sell-side analyst cover more than, what do you think, 18 companies? Yeah, probably. With two junior analysts helping you out. Well, and you have extensive models on revenue and income and the balance sheet and all that on a quarterly basis, and here they... They don't do that. Well, what I'm wondering is that this sheet, which is dated August 12th, was prepared by analyst L.Y., yeah, the, says that there's no debt. They used to give the full names on here, but now they they're don't. hiding. But yeah. my, my question is, hmm, does that mean that I've got to worry about the freshness of some of the other numbers on this? Well, they do give a date here, long-term debt as of March 31st. Okay. And the date on this is August 12th. Okay. So they really should have some the note. June 30 number on right. here. But for whatever reason, 
L-Y, uh, get on yeah, the stick L-Y here. L-Y was... Because uh, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't cut it where we're sitting. You know, maybe they had a baby or something. Well, we don't, don't know what L was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, All right, let uh, me ask you another ratio question. Yes, sir. Sales per share. Yeah. For some reason, value... Li- now, I'm assuming that this is not... All of these ratios are not necessarily tracking an income statement. It seems as though they have some sense of prioritization. Do you ever look at sales per share? I mean... Yeah, of course, sure. And why? I mean, I know that you want to see sales going on. Well, I, I want to either look at sales per share. I already know the stock price. Right. So rather than have to learn the market cap, which is a whole arithmetic problem, right? I just rather have to know the sales per share. Otherwise, i got to know the sales. I could take stock price divided by sales per share. Price to sales is a common ratio people look at. And the reason is, is if you, let's say a company's making no money. Well, the P.E. is no good to you at that point. And so you might have a sense of what an industry can deliver in terms of margin. They're just not delivering it right now because they're too young. They're young or they made a mistake or they're working their way out of something or who knows. But if you have sales and you know that the industry earns a 15% margin and these guys are about in line with the industry in terms of product capabilities, pricing, et cetera, then you can dial in a 15% margin to that sales per share number. Get a pro forma and earnings you get a number. kind of a pro forma. And I'll tend to have a three, four-year horizon, so I might, you know, that, that gives me a chance to get out past the noise, past the mistake, past whatever it is. And uh, because ultimately, if you're losing a bunch of money and you're a pretty good company, it's either you had a write-off, you had an acquisition that went bad, you had something go bad, and you're, you're going to fix it, and you're going to get back to – to some kind of normal. I, I would say when I look through Value Line, uh, the most typical reason for a good company to show a loss is that they have recognized an impaired asset and written it off. Right. Um, you do have losses sometimes as well. But um, Well, the other thing that's interesting about this, this company is it, it looks as though it's growing into its P.E. ratio. Obviously, um, people are were, very, very enthusiastic about the concept in 2007 as yeah. to, you know, this was going to be a big industry. And they were right. They bid that up, and you can see it was trading at a 78% premium to the market. The next year, as it became a little more operational, still enthusiastic, 43% premium to the market, then a 50% premium, then an 18% premium. It's a little bit of a discount now, but I think that often happens as a company that's in a hot industry matures, becomes operational, moves away from the concept phase, right more smack into the, the operational phase, and it gradually grows into its multiple. And if your multiple relative to the market is slowly shrinking, it can have a cap on your stock price. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I'd, all, I'd note, though, one of the things here, I mean, they do, it, basically they're empowering um, Internet advertising, web advertising. And if you remember back in 07 and 08, Mm-hmm. We own some newspapers here in the shop, and we own some Internet stocks here in the shop. Um, and the transition of advertising from traditional media to the web is taking longer than people thought. Um, there's a lot of thoughts about why that is. Um, one reason is is that typically when you're on the Internet, you're on a PC and you're at a, at a desk or something, and you're not ready to be hypnotized because you're working on something proactively and you're not as susceptible to suggestions is the idea. So that ad isn't as valuable because its ability to affect your behavior is not as high because you're focused on some work. Over in your living room, 
on a big screen, you're relaxed on your couch, maybe you've had an adult beverage, and when those ads are on, the word on the street is you're more susceptible to that suggestion. So, because you're relaxed, your mind is open, you're, you're being entertained by something, you're in a passive mode, and, and so that ad, in effect, is more valuable because it has a better chance to affect your behavior. Now, you, don't, you don't fast forward your, through your ads? Well, I do, but, um, you know, I mean, that, that, that is, that is a, you know, a serious issue. But um, what's happening now, and I looked last night, you know, Apple just put out their new Mac Mini, they're advertising the single HDMI cable to your big screen. You got Google TV out there. You've got uh, Hulu, Amazon Prime, Instant Video. You have, you have all these internet things that want to now be on your TV, and you have companies advertising how easy it is to get them on your TV. And so, some of the buzz in advertising land is not only are the number of ads on the internet going up just in pure units because people are spending more time on the internet. But as the Internet comes to the living room and the Internet becomes a passive entertainment vehicle, you're going to become more susceptible to those ads, and those ads are going to go up in value. And the other thing that's interesting about ads on the Internet, I would note, because I already am using the Internet to watch these kinds of things, is you cannot fast-forward right. through the commercial. So, you know, we've got VCRs and we have DVRs and we have all this stuff, but actually the future is going to take us back to the past in terms of your ability to fast-forward through the Internet advertising. And one thing they're doing is they're making you sit through the advertisement before they show you anything. So it's, it gets you at the front end when you're most susceptible. Anyway, long story short, the theory would be that Internet advertising in the next five years is going to be bigger and more valuable than television advertising as the internet is your television and what I'd note on this particular stock is during 08 and 09 when newspapers were getting crushed because of the collapse of consumer advertising these guys held up pretty well they did and you can also see in the sales line look at the look at the traction and from 2003 to 2006 they were treading water they had 57 million in sales, 62 million in sales, 58 million in sales, 68 million in sales. I mean, there's no real discernible trend there. And 2007, bang, 97, 157 in 2008, 190 million, and then 247 million. I mean, that really shows you that they've now, you know, the rubber's on the road, and they're delivering. Well, are they, they're certainly pointing a direction, and I see the share counts going up in each of those years, so yep. I bet they're buying things, but in order to do that, you've got to know where you're heading, and it seems clear that there was some epiphany where they're like, let's head that direction, and yep. they've been heading that way. So like like I it. like that, DG Fast Channel, ticker DGIT. And then finally, and we've been taking a lot of your time, and Mo, I know you got to get off somewhere, so thanks for hanging in, audience. Um, last up this week, EBIX. Inc. ticker EBIX. Uh, again, attracted to the low multiple, 11 times, 30% uh, discount to the market. Although, to most point, it tends to trade there, so I'm not sure we're going to get a ton of multiple expansion. But what I got attracted to, in addition to that, I got a sub, uh, you know, sub-average PE multiple. I've got operating margins in the 30, 40% with no hiccup in 08 or 09, both years when most normal companies 
had hiccups, and these guys did not. So it suggests that something they're doing is very good, and the margins have been going up during that period. So, again, that's good. Returns on capital have been, um, you know, in the, have been hitting the 20s for quite a long time, but in recent years we had a 32, a 23, and another 23. And here in 2011 um, the earnings are, you know, flattish with 2010, so I'm going to guess that the returns this year are going to be in the 20s as well. That's a pretty good number. So what do they do? EBIX provides, and if you didn't guess it, this issue was a software and e-commerce solutions issue, but they provide software and e-commerce solutions to the insurance industry. They operate data exchanges which provide connectivity between consumers, agents, carriers, third-party providers, and I'm just reading value line, as well as enables the participants to carry and process data in the areas of life insurance, annuities, employee health benefits, property and casualty, blah, blah, blah. So they are providing some kind of platform for maybe insurance agents to, you know, build out what type of product package am I going to offer my prospect. And um, with the, you know, meaningful increase in sales each year and the high margin returns on capital, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess that whatever it is they're doing, and they're doing it very well, and that's why more and more people are hiring them. So, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what the reason is for the increase in sales. Is it they have a couple of insurance companies and they're rolling it out to more and more of their agents as people get excited about it? Or do they have a couple insurance companies and they're rolling out to additional insurance companies and they're the platform of choice for great sales agents at independent firms, the types of firms that wouldn't be generating their own um, software, you know, I don't know. Well, whatever they're buying, the margins of the companies that they're buying, if in fact that's what's driving sales, have been profitable because they've got great sales growth. Yeah. They've got good margin expansion. I mean, the margins every year that, that I'm looking from 2003 to 2011, margins have expanded. Each and every year. That's every right. single year. Yeah. So my question is, the stock was $30 in the middle of March. Yeah. At the end of March, it was 25. It continued to decline. And you know, in June, if you read a little bit further down the company's, uh, <clears throat> company's description, company yeah. update, the board approved a share repurchase. And they increased it from 45 million to $100 million. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> obviously, they've been looking at the stock price going down. Yeah wondering at the board meeting what kind of a signal do we have to send to people that are that are, we're in good shape, we're a cash cow. Now, the nice thing is if we see market turbulence and these guys have $100 million that they've got in ammo to be buying this stock and supporting it, uh, you couldn't ask for a better insurance policy outside of a nice, safe dividend mm -hmm. in a turbulent market than a board that's committed to buying their own stock when you've got good fundamentals and a stock that seems to be weak, maybe just for market for market reasons. Yeah, I, I don't see any news here that would suggest, you know, that something's wrong. Um, you know, the insurance company or the insurance industry, I think, is dependent on decent returns on their capital in order to meet the commitments they have for life insurance and perhaps these 
very low rates of risk-free returns um, are just causing people to believe that, you know, maybe they're not going to grow as fast, the insurance industry, and maybe that means that they won't be buying as much of this company's product. I mean, that's certainly why the stock is down right now. I don't know, but I would say that it does seem to have this period, if you look like it, it's, it's the same time every year. Where in the fall, and I'm not, you know, I'm not a, uh, you know, a chart reader exactly or a palm reader or whatever, but I just look at this and it looks like every year, at this time of year, this thing kind of gets under some pressure. Um, now this year it happened a little earlier, but it, it, it looks like some type of stair-step function and, and it happens in past years. And, and my guess is it has something to do with some cyclicality in the insurance industry. Um, and I don't know the answer Val, to that. Val, Yeah. You are reading my palm. That the chart is over to the left. That's that's my palm. Oh, really? You're I'm sorry. At. Okay. There's it here. Oh, oh, you better take it. Sorry. There, there, there's the chart. All right. It's interesting that uh, you saw all that in my palm. That's, well, I think you're going to have a very nice future, Mr. Mentum. But, um, you know, the stock... It's off a little bit. Now, as a value guy, you know, we're going to buy stuff that looks cheap, that has could have some hair on it. Um, the question is, is it cheap enough to take on the risk of uncertainty? And value investors are always dealing with that. I mean, when you're trying to buy a stock that's cheap but it's good, you obviously have to take something on that the market's not willing to take on, and that's going to be – it could often be, I mean, the thing I would most like for it to be is we don't know what's going to happen this quarter, so we're too scared to buy it. But I don't care what happens this quarter. I care what happens a year or two or three years from now, so I'm very comfortable with that. Um, but it would be, you're right, Mo, it would be good to know, is there something going on right now that's causing this to go down? And if it's kind of a short-term event with regard to insurance industry cyclicality, which is you know, goes on every year, then, then I, I like that because I'm taking advantage of people's, um, you know, fear about the very near term. And I would point out that we never know what's going to happen in the very near term. Even if we think we know what's going to happen, that's probably the moment when it's the most likely we don't actually know what's going to happen. So I'm very comfortable with uncertainty, and here I'm getting it at a price that, uh, you know, this thing was 30 a little while ago, now it's 16. So... Um, do some homework, but this is one I'd be stepping into, I think, here with maybe a little bit more and it's, work. And it's true that Val and I do not know what the what the next few days, what the next week will hold now. Well, I do, but I just don't want to say. The director of research here does, as he tells us in our morning, in our morning oh, does call. Does he? Often. Your director of research knows what's happening? That's what he's paid Why for. Why doesn't he put something out on that? Because Let the rest of us know. His job is to just uh, sit and think. Okay, well, good. Um, so anyway, you know, Mo, that's another show. People you wanna, have, you, what's your pick? People have, again, wasted nearly 45 minutes of their time with us. Um, my favorite one this week, and Phil, this is for you. I know I forgot to do it last week. I apologize. Um, but my favorite one is going to be, um, and it's because of the wind at our back, uh, and I think it's because of the big discount it appears to be selling at. I'm going to go with DG Fast Channel this week, Mo. 
All right. Well, I'm gonna gonna disagree with you on this show, okay. and just I'm gonna go with Atwood Oceanics for the simple reason that if you own the stock, you had five years of a great run. There was a reset in 2008. If you bought during the reset, you had another three-year run. We have another reset here. Yeah. Both of those resets were market-related, had nothing to do with the stock. You get in again, the EPS numbers look good. It's a fixed cost base that they're leveraging. The margins look good. Um, so I think every time this stock has a reset, you buy it, and hopefully we get another three-year period before we get a reset again. Sounds good, Mo. Well, again, thanks for listening in, everybody. This has been the August 12, 2011 edition of the Value Line Observer with the Value Guys. See all our caveats, bios, pictures our moms took, etc. at www.thevalueguys.com. So long, everybody.